Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCore subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts. To break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. 
So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right. So Erin and I are tackling a tricky topic today and one that just recently started taking on a whole new meaning to me, that touchy topic of clinical supervision. So personally, just recently, I accepted a position as clinic coordinator at a local university in addition to still seeing patients for my business via teletherapy. So instead of just supervising one student and pouring my heart into them, I will now be supervising numerous students at a time. And Erin, who just started back face-to-face sessions in her brand new interdisciplinary clinic in the upstate and is starting her new role as clinical supervisor for the first time in like a few weeks, I think. Um... So for the first time in both of our professional careers, we are tackling supervision in a new light. And to be honest, y'all, I'm completely freaking terrified. (laughs) So we've got that going for us. I have not one person to potentially mentor or screw up at once, but like I got like 25 kids a semester that like I could fail. Um, But we're going to choose Joy because I hear Maria from SLP's Wine and Cheese in my head saying, Michelle, less self-deprecation and more self-love. So that's what today's episode is. Erin and I speaking words of positivity and success into our nerdy selves. Um, Words of you've got this and through you and your mentorship, countless other lives will be ready to enter our professional world and serve our patients to the best of their ability. And I have to remember that because internally, I'm total panic. Externally, we've got this. So Erin, are you ready so that we can change some kids' stars? Dun, dun, dun. I mean, I'm just taking one graduate student, so (laughs) that's still terrifying. Yes, but you were the one graduate student, and look at everything that came from that. So, I mean, no pressure. (laughs) None. Yeah. Yeah. You leave really big shoes, by the way. So, like, (laughs) good luck. Uh, also, I, y'all, she has like amazing shoe selection that matches her fanny pack and jean skirts. And I don't know if I did that, I would definitely look like a mom, but like Aaron rocks it. And I'm kind of jealous as I say that. But I'm also <laughs> a size 10 shoe. So I legit have really large shoes. <laughs> I only laugh because the kids have been like, mom, her foot's so much bigger. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Oh my God. I love you. Okay. So, so much has happened and this has been a crazy summer and supervision has, supervision has taken all new meanings because we're in the middle of a pandemic where various states are opening back up. And, um, uh, with that comes a whole bunch of new challenges. So before we go into the meat of this, please, please, please stay on top of what's happening in your individual states and look for the ASHA updates uh, that they email out or go directly to the tele-supervision website. Uh, Some states that, um, like ours truly, that opened saw the cases go from, oh, 40 a day across the whole state to, what was the record for yesterday? Like 1,500 in one day or something? 1,800, not that I've been looking. Uh, Oh, yeah, 1,800. So, um... And bear in mind that in South Carolina, our um, teletherapy approval codes are supposed to um, close on July 31st because we don't have a uh, teletherapy, basically like a carte blanche part right. of our practice act. So come August 1st, we're we not have supposed to. to. Yeah, we have to do face-to-face sessions and we're no longer allowed to bill for teletherapy. I say that because that's a problem because our numbers are going skyrocketing. Not to mention a lot of insurances in our state don't cover teletherapy for feeding. Yes. So we say this because every state is different and y'all – 
when your state applies for the interstate compact license to unify state licensures across state lines, I highly encourage you to advocate for its approval because that sure would be lovely if we had a whole lot of states on board doing the same thing for continuity of care. Okay, that was a big soapbox squirrel. Pretty good, right? Right out, mm-hmm. right out the gate, we went right there. Yes. Yeah. Also, on bright news, dog lived. She's still alive. Yes, I'm talking about you. She chose life and her ticker and her Lasix and her cardiac medicine. She thinks she's a new puppy. So she um, I'm very excited about this. Okay. All right. So let's go into it and get the dry stuff out the gate before we go into some examples and tie it into um, case studies. How about that? Perfect. Cool. All right. So the new supervision requirements as stated by ASHA. All right. So how many different um, pop-up things do I have open right here? Um, Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So supervision requirements changed for 2020. I am hoping that everybody was aware of that. uh, But if you were not aware of that, they did. All right, so under the um, new requirements, uh, here's how it's worded. In order to be a clinic supervisor, you have to be a fully licensed ASHA seed SLP. All right, you have to have completed a minimum of basically two years of full-time work after completing your seeds, okay? You also, so you you graduate and then two years later, after you've held your C's for two years, then you can apply to be a supervisor. All right. Um, All right. Next one. You have to complete a minimum of two hours of professional development in the area of clinical instruction or supervision. All right. Right now, that is a one-time appointment. Right. So you do the two hours of clinical supervision and, and that's, it's considered done. Okay. Please be aware that that's probably subject to change. It'll probably be, you know, two hours of clinical supervision. I could see them adding that in, um, uh, part of every three year requirements. There's talk on the wind of the ethics, um, increasing the minimal ethics CEUs increasing. So right now it's two and done, but, and, and you will get that credit through today actually, but you know, two and done. All right. That's the minimum. A two hour class barely scratches the surface for what all you need to learn in order to be a successful clinical supervisor. Two years out from grad school, there's a lot of clinicians that don't have the skill set or strength in order to be there. Um, Aaron is, I, honey, I can say it. You are an anomaly in that. And I'm proud of that, of you for that. But there's a lot that still need more experience. So I say that to just kind of put that in the frame of reference. Okay. So those, those are the, the bare bones, dry stuff. Now out of that, here's my fun part. If you want to pay it forward and be a clinical supervisor, dun, 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 reach out to your universities. Dude, in my new hat, please reach out to your university and say, so Michelle, I hear you need a preceptor for your clinical people. Yes, yes, please reach out to us. We love hearing that because we're always on the hunt for new high quality kids are going to learn on their feet location sites. Mm-hmm. So, yes. All right, so super dry stuff. How do we do? Good. Pretty, pretty cut and dry. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So that's it. Uh, that will probably be subject to change. Now, some resources for the super dry stuff, frequently asked questions about student supervision, SLP backs, it's asha.org backslash SLP backslash supervision FAQs backslash hashtag requirements. Okay. And it's right on there. All right. So well, let's bounce back to the journal articles, but in here they have some really neat, um, supports about whether or not you have to be on site, whether or not you can supervise more than one time. And I appreciated that because, 
one of the questions, um, do I need to supervise the student more for swallowing cases than other disorders? Okay. That's, that's a really common question, right? Especially for the patient population that we see. The amount of time that you spend with the student in direct supervision, it has to be at minimum 25% of their contact hours. But each student has their own strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So some students will require more hands-on training because they may not have ever seen that before. Other students will require less because it could be, I mean, what, you had five practicums, right? Yeah. Yeah. Were they, were they five off-campus practicums? Mm-hmm. Good golly. Yes. And that's that's atypical. Most people right. get two, three at best. Mm-hmm. So – with that um, wide variety and opportunity, you got to see more. So base your feedback and um, supports on what the students need. But I just thought that was a really, really good question. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. Okay. All right. So do you have a favorite resource? Um, I actually found this article – um, of course, it's from Australia because I love Australia. <laughs> well, I mean, if you don't marry an Australian, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. Like, it will happen, and I know that. Uh, anyone knows of an – I'm just kidding. But, um, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> but, not really. but they uh, researched clinical supervision in all allied health professionals. Um, so it was speech pathologists. They had OTs. They had – Social workers. Wait, what was the name of the article? It was called Effective Clinical Supervision of Allied Health Professionals, a Mixed Method Study. And in this study, they looked at, it was more clinical supervision from like a higher level. As, you know, if you were an SLP, like someone that was more your superior or just had more experience than you. And they looked at what, what was most important for the supervision to be effective. And the biggest things that they found were that the professional, um, that their development must be the focus of supervision. And they, the way they described that was as opposed to just critiquing their clinical skills, the focus is to help grow and give them strategies to improve as opposed to just telling them everything that they did wrong. Um, From the supervisor's standpoint, obviously the supervisor has to have the skills and attributes to facilitate a constructive relationship. So not just the skill, the clinical skills, but also the skills to have those conversations and make it a positive experience because, and what I thought was really about how they talked about this. They said that the supervisor also, and I think you're a big proponent of this, should be not questioning, but constantly looking at their own skill set. Yes. Because that's how you grow. And it's important, they say, to you know, focus on how you learn and to be really flexible because you're not always going to have people that you supervise that learn the exact same way that you do. And you have to, to be willing to grow yourself in the way that you communicate to help with that. It's about the relationship, not just you teaching them. Yes. Yes. Okay. So like 14 different thoughts on that. Um, one, One of the preconceived notions is that, um, and something that I struggle with, is that a lot of clinical supervisors practice under the misinformation or misguided information that uh, the students know what is expected of them prior to the student arriving, okay? So basically... The fact that the academic coursework will have prepped the student for the off-site clinical practicum. That is inaccurate and erroneous information, okay? That's your job as the clinical supervisor is to teach them everything you know about that 
sight about that location. If you're in an outpatient clinic, if you're in home health, that student's probably never seen that before. They don't even know down to basic decorum, etiquette, professional manners. How do you greet people? Y'all, this week I was told that nobody used ma'am or sir when addressing some of the senior patients. Okay, or their caregivers. Like if a tiny human came in the door, oh no, a firecracker just went out. Chewy, it's okay. It's okay. Y'all, I apologize in advance. But we're Southern. If you don't say yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, or yes, sir, that's a huge sign of disrespect. Now, yes, I know the people in Arizona. I was out there and I said yes, ma'am, and I thought a lady was going to whack me with her cane. But, but you have the to South- code switch. I learned real. I learned that yes. really quickly because if I didn't say that, they'd be like, "Oh, you're a Yankee." Yes. Okay. So that gets me to this journal article that I found. Um, It is called The Importance of Cultural Competence in Supervisory Relationships. It was from the SIG-11 Administration and Supervision, April 24th, 2020, by this lovely lady named Anua Submaranian. Okay. So the whole purpose of the article was that, and I'll, I'll summarize the conclusion. It's important for clinical educators and or supervisors to beware of the cultural identity gather knowledge about other cultures and develop positive attitudes about different cultures. Clinical educators and or supervisors should use their supervisory meetings to initiate discussions related to cultural influences and differences to ensure supervisees. He did. We love the article. Okay. But here's the deal. I know when um, through members in the community, oh my God, he just sat on me. I know through members in the community that there are um, different individuals that use different pronouns, right? So one right. of the first questions I ask is, okay, well, what pronoun am I supposed to use? And then <laughs> Chewie also supports that. Because <laughs> like, oh, he needed a good belly scratch. Um, so... <laughs> Today's just been one of those days. Oh my gosh. So one of the things that I did when I came on was, are there any students that use different um, uh, different pronouns that I need to be aware of? And that's one of the questions that you can ask your, as a clinical supervisor, do you have different pronouns that you would prefer me to use? I'm not sure the appropriate term is to say different or if it's just what pronoun would you like for me to use? I think mm-hmm. it's the more appropriate way to ask that question but i mean that's but that's it and with everything going on in our world we should understand about code switching and dialect versus difference and even within the students that we're supervising okay so i just i feel really really strongly about that and when i saw this article i was like oh that's amazing so mm-hmm. yes so does Chewbacca. Okay, Aaron, go. I'm going to throw the beast out. <laughs> tell, well, tell us your next exciting bit of adventure. Well, also, the the article that um, I was talking about earlier, a big thing they also mentioned is that the organization that either the supervisor works for, um, whether they're supervising a student or it's just supervision within that same department, they have to create this environment that helps to facilitate constructive supervisory relationships and professional development. And that can involve either giving that professional time, like specified time to discuss patients or to observe or to have that own professional development. But I think it's also that development of a culture in which those conversations are okay where you can ask for help, where you don't feel that you always have to know what you're exactly what to do for sake of, you know, it showing some sort of weakness or feeling that it will impact your relationship with your manager or your supervisor or something like that. And I have been a part of, an organization where that was definitely not the case that I felt like that relationship was moldable, I guess is the right word. Because what I love about this article is they talk about 
learning, you know, helping with someone's learning style and being flexible and having those conversations. And I've been places where there was no flexibility. And you I mean as a student or as, as an as, as an employee? employee. Yes. Um, and also, I knew that, but... yeah, as an employee, and there it was very much you have to fit this specific mold. And it wasn't very much a supervisor relationship and very similar. There wasn't that much of a difference between um, experience levels, which is totally fine. That's what supervisor relationships can be. I mean, if I'm, I'm going to be a clinical supervisor, I have two years of experience. Like that's not much more than a student has, but I think it's super I just value so, so, so much having that relation, like having that environment and where I am now, there is such a positive, like there's such a good energy towards asking questions, but being a team. My supervisor now is very open to my opinions and she values my opinions and we feel like we can feed off of each other. And and I think that's important in, in any sort of relationship like that. Okay. Chewbacca went back inside, so I have to go let the Wookiee back inside. But that also speaks a lot to the work culture and the um, and, and and that impacts the quality and caliber of the student's experience. If they are placed in a work culture for their outpatient practicums that's toxic and not healthy, then that will trickle over and sway them. I mean, that could that kind of experience will indicate to us, how do I say this politely? If they get placed at a SNF and it's a terrible experience, then they're probably never gonna wanna work at a SNF, even though they would have been great working at the SNF, they, that one experience might ruin it for them. Right. Or say they go do home health, but yet they're seeing a bag of tricks therapist with a lot of chewy tubes, all of which is not evidence-based, then they're gonna say, oh, well, that's what all the home health SLPs do. Eh, and it might scare them away or worse. It might tell them that that's acceptable. And then they're going to replicate that terrible experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I like to think that even if I didn't have you as a supervisor, I would still question things because I'm a skeptic is my nature. But I think that I was lucky to have supervisors that I did agree with and that that showed me the light first so that when I had other experiences where things maybe weren't evidence-based that I saw and I questioned it um it was it helped me and it, it made me do my own research but I remember even as a student thinking if someone else came into this position and this was their first experience with feeding or their first experience with more medically complex kids, like they might just think that this is the right way to do things because I think that happens a lot. And I think it's not the fault of the student. Like they expect that their clinical supervisor is doing the right thing. And what they're doing is evidence-based that sadly is not always the case, but like just a forewarning, I think, if you're going into being a clinical supervisor, you should prepare for a Michelle or an Aaron because eventually you're going to get one that's going to be like, <laughs> why are you doing this? And if you don't have an answer for them, they might give you research. Or if you don't have an answer for them, you should probably think about why you're doing it, which I think is why being a clinical supervisor is so important because it forces you to answer questions and really think about why you're doing something. Because I think sometimes you get into this routine of this is how I've always done it or this is comfortable. This is comfortable, but we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So one of the other research articles that I found and that I loved was one, um, it was called, um, it was in the same SIG-10. Um, y'all, Erin and I have talked about the special interest groups and how there's one for dysphagia, which is SIG-13, but there's one SIG-10 for issues in higher education, right? Um, and if you're diehard love being a clinical supervisor, then you do need to check out those issues because they do carry over, okay? So there was this one titled... Um, uh, predicting clinical success and speech language pathology graduate students. Ha. Volume five, issue 20 from April, 2020 by Lydia Richardson, Elizabeth Roberts, and Shelley Victor. Okay. So I was this person and this one hit kind of home to home. There's two articles that I found that I was this person tonight and I was like, God, I was a pain. Um, also, Andrea, if you're listening, thank you for being the most amazing clinical coordinator ever and putting up with me. <laughs> but okay. What it did was they went through and they compared clinical indicators for academic performance and compared it to how the student actually lives up to their offsite practicum. Okay. So. Um, they went through and looked at um, 45 students enrolled in a graduate program between 2014 and 2016, and they compared and contrasted um, their GRE, their undergraduate GPA, uh, their current GPA, as well as non-academic variables, age, personality type, previous work experience, and um, none of it was found to have a significant correlation in clinical success as an SLP graduate student, okay? So that means what it boils down to, if you think that because you're the A student in class that you are going to do an A job in your clinical practice site, no, that's not correct. That's if what I told have, everyone. Yes. Just kidding. But, yeah, no, but seriously, <laughs> but was... like, I thought because I was the A student that I should do great in my offsite practicums. Not necessarily. But but also on the flip side, if you have RA clinical supervisor and you have a student who say they also have a part-time job and they're a parent, that doesn't mean necessarily they're not going to be successful. So that's those are also preconceived no, notions that carry back over to cultural competencies mm -hmm. doesn't and that what, make you question too like how are we missing people that could be great clinicians because they're you know they don't fit a mold academically yeah. yes yes I have thought that for a while because I have a hard time reading people. I don't always pick up on social cues. I don't know when to quit talking or I don't know when to start talking. That's when and I help you. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. But I rely on people to help me read the room because I'll just continue to work on it socially. I'd love to be part of a research study to figure out what's wrong with me. I got a couple notions. But, but that's just it. But I got in because I'm really good on paper. But me being really good on paper personally, and this, y'all, this is, this is errands and dirty laundry. I didn't always do great in my clinical practicum sites. I mean, when I found my niche, y'all, I rocked it. But it turns out my niche was with like really complex cases, academics, public schools. No, 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 no. But that's also, I think that's really important too when you think about clinical supervision because our field is so varied like mm -hmm. some people, the patients that we treat and the settings that we work in and the type of diagnoses and goals that we work on are so different. So, and again, I have not yet been a clinical supervisor, but I think it's important. It's important to acknowledge um, that it may not be the student's what it may not be what their end goal is. This may just be a, a, something that they have to check off to get their hours and it doesn't make it it doesn't mean that they're you should put less effort into them but I think they say the same article that I read talked about it's really really important to sit with the student and spend those first few days or a certain amount of time 
learning them just as we do with any of our patients. We build rapport. We don't expect them to work on their goals immediately. And if they, you know, allow them to be honest, I think, because then you guys can be on the same page as far as what the goal is. And if, you know, you're, if you and I working on pediatric feeding, if their goal really is to be with adults, okay, well, what is really important that I can help teach them that will carry over even more into their adults while still treating my patients to the best of their ability. And maybe you might surprise them and they might realize that they want to do peds. I would find joy in that if that's something I could do. But either way, I think just think about what they could get from it and don't just expect them to fit into this mold and and be you because they're not going to be you. I'm, they have I'm their own ex- yeah. Yes, no, but they they have their own experiences and personal baggage that comes forward into that evidence-based triangle. And their personal experiences and baggage is different, and that's okay. Good Lord Almighty, do you know how boring we would be if we didn't have all that? Well, even just acknowledge that they do already have their own evidence-based triangle. They're not completely a blank slate and not mm-hmm. in a negative way, but like you don't know all the experiences that they've had or what they've been through or what they've been taught in all their courses or if they've had another practicum before you. Like you don't you don't know that unless you dig deeper. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's incredibly important too not speaking from experience as a supervisor, but as a... um, No, but you're getting ready to start. And and that's key. So, I mean, that's... that's, But coming into it with open eyes is key. Okay. So I had two great resources. Okay. Next one. All right. So this one is another... This is another article that's close to home for me personally. Um, And um, I was not identified as having ADD or ADHD until I was in graduate school. Okay. And it came about in the most inappropriate way. I was sitting there happily plucking along. I mean, little Miss Goody Two Shoes and her little straight aid self, right? Sitting there filling out a patient eval. To this day, when I fill out an eval for a patient, um, like when I'm typing the report, not the actual standardized instrument, but like when I'm going through and typing out the report, I'll fill out some at the top and some at the bottom. Some over here, some over here. And I bounce back and forth. But it makes sense in my head, right? Because I know how I was connecting the dots. So my clinical supervisor at the time was looking over me and I'd been there, I don't know, two weeks. And she goes, are you special? (gasps) And I was like, um... Well, my dad says I am, and I was sitting right next to the sweetest PTA who did not like my clinical supervisor, and um, she went ramrod straight, and I'll never forget this. We were on the fourth floor of that rehab hospital. No, the seventh floor of that rehab hospital, down on the corner. God, there was no air conditioning, and everything smelled like feet, so sensory overload, right? And um, she goes, no, you just don't know how to write. Like you can't go from one thing to the next thing. You bounce all over. So are you special? Do you need your medications or something? And like, you cannot say those things to a student. That is not okay. Also, yeah, first time anybody pointed out because literally everybody in my family functions the same way <laughs> because we all have a little bit of ADD, ADHD, but like it wasn't like nobody had ever said that to me like that before. And I crumpled, it crumpled, it hurt. I was so angry because it made sense in my head and I didn't feel because there is power in a clinical supervisor position and there are those that will abuse that power, right? So instead of phrasing that question in a more polite way. Hey, this is a lot. The lights are really bright. The room's really loud. Everything smells like feet and not good lotion, but like some, yeah. Um, Do you need like a quieter room with that help? Because I mean, this is a lot of information you're trying to process. Michelle, now I can, that probably wouldn't have been more an appropriate way. Nor did I know at the time that I didn't feel that I could go and reach out to my clinic coordinator because I was afraid if I said this happened mm-hmm. and it hurt my feelings, I was afraid it would be a ramification on my grade. That is nothing 
I mean, like my clinic coordinator would have gone to bat for me, but I was just too afraid because anxiety, right? So here's a great article. It is called, it was um, in the ASHA Journals Academy, um, Students with Disability in Classroom and Clinic, Business as Usual. It's from February 2012. God, that makes me feel really old. By Dr. Jane Jaro, um, PhD. And she lays it out that more and more individuals with differing abilities are entering higher education and graduate school. And we need that because our patients and those that we serve should also be representative by those that treat them, okay, across all standards. And she gave examples in there as to what to do for students that have um, differing abilities or um, if you're concerned that the student is struggling and you don't have a diagnosis, some students do not talk about to um, their clinical supervisors that they may come in with an accommodation. They may come in with a 504. They may come in with an IEP, okay? Uh, they may need um, just a little bit of support here or there, okay? But how many times do you as an individual clinical supervisor know, hey, I really need to take a break and then come back to this, or I need to write reports first thing in the morning? I mean, we all give our own accommodations to ourselves, and these individuals also know their strengths and weaknesses, okay? And if you suspect something or if you have concerns as the clinical supervisor, please reach out to the clinic coordinator because that's their job is to relay that. Now, to be fair, some students do not have a diagnosis, yours truly, and have no idea that their executive functioning skills may look different than appears. But, um, Oh, that still makes me mad even now, just thinking back on that. Good Lord, that got me hot really quick. But yes, so there's that. Thoughts? Well, and, <laughs> well, no, I mean, and how did – we're so focused sometimes on how people get to from point A to point B, which is important, but as a fully functioning adult student, if you were writing – if your product of your eval was of quality, it did the process, the process she should be, have been much more accommodating of, but it sounds like it was someone that couldn't quite think out. So I don't know this woman. I don't know if I would love her, but it doesn't <laughs> sound like she could quite think out of the box. Well, and I just the response I give is skewed. <laughs> I and I want to ask you on the spot because I we didn't talk about this before. If you could give me three tips, what they would be. But first, I want to say that, and you have taught me this, is you get so much more from building people up than yes. you do from t like I can't even tell you and I said this in our therapy tip it if you're a newer clinician yes it's overwhelming you I think it's hard to think that you know enough to treat a student I'm struggling with that because I'm still learning about all my patients there are patient populations that I may not have seen as much I'm getting more on my caseload right now hello more arctic children because of teletherapy which I'm I'm working on it but wait it, Dr. Angela we love you thank you for the R teletherapy sorry but um we have these experiences of clinical supervisors more readily available to go and process and think of what worked for us, what didn't work for us, what we wish they could have done, what what we wish they didn't do. And I think that can be really helpful in being a supervisor because, and I don't know how this will sound, but if we, if, and I never have given birth, but if you could really remember how painful birth was, I feel like there wouldn't be families of multiple children. So you sometimes forget this, these 
experiences mm-hmm. that you went through so they can continue. This might not sound super relatable, but I think once you get to a certain point in your career, you don't remember all those experiences of your practicums nope. super in depth. And I am hold there. on, yeah, hold on. Um, don't. I hope that made okay. some sort of sense. But we can look at those because I vividly remember some of my friends in grad school that had these experiences, and it was whether good or bad. Those are I can pick apart the good and the bad of that to think about how I want to be as a clinical supervisor. But it is so, so, so important to have confidence in your students. I think some of the best supervisors I had pushed me out of my comfort zone very early because mm-hmm. they were like, like the, I remember one of my placements in a long-term acute care hospital, like the second day she was like, oh no, you're doing this. I'm going to be here, but you're doing this on your own. And these people had trachs and she was a great supervisor. She watched me. Don't worry. These patients were safe. But like when your supervisor has faith in you, you have so much more confidence and we have faith in our patients to be able to exceed expectations. So I don't know why some supervisors are so hard on their students and create this negative environment. Like you're not going to get more out of them from that. And you always had this positivity and, and wanted to make people better. Yes. So I find joy in shining other people's lights because for me, philosophically, that was just how I was raised. Right. And because of the trauma that I survived while I was going to graduate school full time, I was running a caseload of 50 to 60 kids as an SLPA ish in the public schools. Um, And on top of that, I was married to a very, very violent ex-husband. And I've said it before, it gets maybe microscopically easier every single time I say it. I am alive today because I took the bullets out of a gun. Or I wouldn't be here. I have seen true horrors. And in a time when I was worried about my GPA and getting enough clock hours, And it makes me incredibly empathetic to what the students are going through because I did grad school at the lowest time in my entire life, right? So that's that's why, y'all, we do so many different lectures on clinical supervision. That's why there's there's my – because my heart is in this because – I did this when it was so dang hard, right? So here's the deal. Um, My top tips for the clinical supervisor, y'all, honey, they don't know what they don't know. And half of them are too afraid to admit that they don't know it because they don't want to let you down. Either they don't want to let you down because they're afraid of you know, a lot of us are type A perfectionists and we desperately just want to prove that we're competent or they don't want to let you down because they're so afraid that um, you're going to knock them down a grade, right? So you have to assume they know nothing. So build them up. To piggyback on that tip, one of my tips is connect them with the community resources. Yes, some of these students will come to you and they have zero desires to live in that immediate community, right? But then you get the gem that may not live in the community, but she may live in a town over or he's going to live in the same state when he graduates, right? So you can take the time to invest in them and tell them about ongoing community resources and supports and various agencies. If you know for a fact that this student does not want to work in pediatrics, but there's a similar support program for adults in the community, we'll then provide that to them. So what, let me give you some case in point examples because somebody somewhere is like, all right, give me an example, Michelle. Okay. Uh, if you um, have a really, I did, I know I did this for you, Aaron, when I knew that you were going to stay and go to one of the local early intervention companies, I connected you with one of the referral coordinators because I knew that she would refer 
patients to you. And I had you contact her during the practicum to relay patient outcomes, patient progress. So that way they had your name. They knew your face. They, I took you by the office and had you um, drop off reports. Was that you that I had drop off reports or somebody else I had drop off reports? I, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember, but like that was a lifetime ago. But see, but you don't remember, right? Because you're just far enough out of it. Okay, so have use your community supports and networks. All right, so um, <clears throat> introduce people when you are at your state conferences, whether it be your state association conference or uh, I. My goodness, I just got an email today. Uh, for an AHEC 2020 Pediatric Symposium. Oh, I got to send it to you. I meant to send it to you earlier. Uh, That's like later this month. And it's all for um, uh, pediatric palliative care for home-based community clinicians. Y'all, those are my babies. Those are my babies that I get. And here's an interdisciplinary conference. When I saw that, I was thrilled because I was like, I have to send it to all my former students that live and work in the local area, right? But those connections, those supports, yes, that is going above and beyond. Yes, that may or may not tie into every single patient on your caseload, but it will tie into a few patients that will fundamentally change those patient starts, which will fundamentally leave a positive impact on the student. I mean, those are, and, and remember one of the things I try to do when I first start out with taking a student And this is the part that I'm going to struggle with moving into like supervising a lot of students at once. Mm -hmm. I always try to, and this is the part that I will have to guard my heart for, right? Because I pour so much into my students and, and I cherish the Christmas cards. I cherish the, the wedding invitations and, and, and seeing babies being born and all of these different stages in the lives. I love watching them grow into their own as young professionals, as stronger, more skilled professionals. And the fact that y'all want to pay it forward and take students of your own makes it come so full circle for me. But I take those first two weeks of the practicum to really get to know y'all, to understand where you are, asking you open-ended WH questions to understand your thought process of what you observed, simply explaining the patient's etiology and concomitant um, comorbidities, right? And I cannot in my head at this moment in time, see how I will successfully do that for so many students at one time. And I know that where there is a will, there is a way, and I will figure it out. I have faith in that. But today, just today I'm grateful for a mustard seed. So Mm -hmm. that's a lot. I love you. I'm so proud of you a supervisor oh shucks okay all right so um a couple of quick um things that are available um focusing in on telesupervision <gasps> my former professor wrote this okay i now, saw that I, yes okay so dr carol dudding oh my gosh the woman's amazing she wrote this in december of 2012 how cutting edge pre-covid cootie season was this um and it talks all about how to use telesupervision and how we can actually do it functionally okay so i i gotta admit reading this thing on paper and seeing it in action are two very different things because she gives actual examples of how to how you need to do this, what licensure requirements are in place. Again, pre-license, pre-COVID versus now we're in COVID and it's kind of just a free-for-all. I recommend you follow up with your state and your um, and ASHA on this um, about what different um, uh, technologies to use, making sure that they're HIPAA compliant, all of those factors. Okay. But see, here's the really cool thing. Um, my sweet little boobaloo Dawson is doing that with students. And I know I have a student and I'm watching 
one student do it with me and we're kind of at the beginning of the term. I was modeling it for her. Now I am sitting next to her. I'm sitting just off screen and I'm, you know, encouraging and guiding and shaping and those kind of things. But for Boopaloo, Bear's got one, um, he's got, you know, his amazing Dr. Angela, and then he has two students working with him. And it's really cool to see how they are working through the process and taking turns. And as a mom, it's really neat. And it makes me think, oh, I really need to make like PowerPoints as a clinician, or how can I do this? Or boom cards. That's what they're called, right? Boom cards. Boom cards. Boom cards. I keep wanting to call them Zoom cards. Or um, just, you know, having a green wall behind me. Granted, for the patients that I work with, it's not appropriate, but just thoughts for the future, right? But it there is an incredibly effective way of doing that. But you also have to provide a lot of feedback before and after the session. And you need to find out, does your student need that written feedback or verbal feedback? And if you speak one language, not like, I'm not talking like Spanish to English, but say you are a, a verbal feedback recipient but your student is a visual feedback recipient, you will have a breakdown in communication right then and there. Mm -hmm. So you've got to make sure that the feedback that you offer is in a way that the student can actually absorb it, um, process it, and then put it in play. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it okay. doesn't matter if, I mean, you may think you're providing all of this feedback, but if it's not functional for them, you're kind of wasting mm-hmm. your time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have, we have like what, five, 10 minutes left? Mm-hmm. I think it's about 10 minutes left. Okay. So I have a couple more. Okay. Um, so on ASHA, um, one of the things, okay, so if you are new to um, being a clinical supervisor, one of the things that I would recommend, um, ASHA has on their, their FAQs, do I need to have the patient or family sign a consent form to allow the student to work with them? Okay, so their response, um, most healthcare facilities that allow for student trainees include a statement in their consent forms that services may be provided by a student clinician under the supervision of a qualified professional. The inclusion and wording of such statements will be influenced by relevant state laws and facility policies. Also, they then turn around and cite the ASHA Code of Ethics um, that we shall not misrepresent um, credentials, competence, education, training, experience, or scholarly or research contributions. Okay. Principle of Ethics 3, Rule A, 2010. All right. How does that correlate? Um, I have my parents personally sign consent for my private practice that they will um, allow a student to uh, participate in therapy, whether it be in observations or direct therapy service. Okay. So... I have one family that has declined. I had to literally redo my entire schedule such that I only see that family when I was going to their homes when there was no student with me. So there was a subway that was convenient to the home, but still, you know, HIPAA compliant for the family. So we would see a couple of patients. I would drop the student off at a subway, buy her lunch because I felt guilty. Um, or there was also a cute cafe that was a little bit farther away. So sometimes I would drop a student off there and then go do therapy. And then I would come back and then pick the student up. But I had to juggle all the hats, right? And be respectful because I'm still going to be the same therapist whether or not I have a student with me. And if the family had a bad experience with the prior student and they're declining, well, then I have to respect that, right? So, um, but there is one extra piece and this is one that I struggle with, especially for private practice owners. If a student is going in to write the documentation and you have a billing system and a documentation system, then that student needs their own user login and ID, okay? Because otherwise, if they're writing the note and signing your pre-populated name, that's a no-no because you're the only person that can click off and sign your name, okay? So um, I use a fantastic documentation system. I absolutely love it. 
Um, there's a couple of fine-tuned kinks that I would like to work out, but I pay $10 a month for my student to have her own user login and ID. Am I getting reimbursed for that? No. Is it a tax write-off? Yeah, actually, it turns out that that $10 a month is a tax write-off. But more importantly, it's also the right thing to do. So for some private practices, if you have, say, you mentor a lot of students, thank you. But if you have to buy and pay for, yeah, that adds up. Is the university going to reimburse you? Nope. But you know it's the right thing to do. So just as a, you know putting that bit of information out in the world. Um, yes. Okay. And then there's three other resources that I have. Okay. So um, the next two are just um, uh, documentation. It's um, an ASHA handout. You can get right on that FAQ page and it's right there. And it's a supervision of speech language pathology graduate students in public schools, what administrators need to know. And it kind of goes through and it gives resources. Um, uh, it's super easy in trying to encourage SLPs that work in the public schools to take students. The other one is supervision of graduate speech language pathology graduate students in healthcare settings, what administrators need to know. And it kind of talks about, yes, they can see patients. Yes, they can still bill for insurance and what the expectations are. And most admin in a hospital are and I hate saying this, but a lot of times they're OTPTs, right? So mm -hmm. they've been through this, but speech is very, very different than OTPTs. So I can see how that tool would be um, incredibly helpful. Also, it would be incredibly helpful if you're just trying to encourage colleagues to be a clinical supervisor because it does kind of dispel the myths really quickly. And then my last resource, um, because I went like, over the top on this one because I feel so strongly about this one is CAPSID. I'm just learning about this thing. It's a Council for Academic Programs and Communication Sciences and Disorders. Y'all, I'm five weeks deep. I still don't really understand everything that I'm doing, but they have webinars. Bear in mind the webinars don't necessarily count for CEUs. Some do, um, some do not, but they have um, PowerPoints on there about ASHA certification and um, accreditation. And I got to be honest, I wish somebody had told me that these things were available a couple of years ago because I've, as many times as I have signed off on the hours, I mean, my goodness, I went through the hour sheet as a student, right? But I didn't understand and nobody was able to relay the ins and outs to me about why we have to have so many hours in the different subject matters. Why um, it just it was the, the, the theoretical framework and I am nerdy and I like that. So they're there. I highly and they're free. So, I mean, if you have an hour on a bike and you don't want to listen to Aaron and I first. Seriously, Aaron and I are delightful. But second, they're really, really good. And I would highly recommend checking them out because they do have stuff on there on graduate student telepractice and some great resources as well. So that's it. I, I kind of, um, that was a lot, but I feel very, very strongly about this. Mm -hmm. So Aaron, what did I miss? I did I give enough anything? Tip? I think so. I think it's just... I mean, the reason why I want to be a clinical supervisor is because I love what we do. And if I can inspire one other person to, I just, I think I had great clinical supervisors, you being one of them, um, obviously. Yeah, Lori. I loved Lori. I love Laurie too. She's wonderful. Bless her. Thank goodness I'm near her right now. Mm -hmm. But, and I can send my kids, but um, I think that I want to give students the tools to form their own opinions and be confident and fight because I think you can. I don't know how to say this in the right way, but I think that when a lot of students go to grad school, it's tough 
and Mm -hmm. it's stressful and I would like to be a safe place because I learned so much from my practicums and that's because of my supervisors. And so just keeping that in mind, I think is really important. Like, why are you trying to do this? I think you need to look at that before you become a supervisor. I agree with everything you just said, Miss Erin. And Miss Erin, somebody just crawled out of bed because his leg is cramping. Oh, so, um, um, poor bye-bye. Working mom problems and all that. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, um, y'all, thank you for hanging through um, uh, clinical supervision in the pandemic with tiny humans. Um, let me um, switch this over to questions and um, go get some ibuprofen for some growing pains. Um Hold on one second. Also, Erin, you're going to be an awesome supervisor, friend. You're going to do great. So, Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.